Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 96 of Sports Speak. Hope you're doing well. I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. What do we have a lot to get to today? A lot of action. It's one of the busiest times of the year in sports. NFL draft in the books. I'm a Met fan. Tim's a Yankee fan. Right now, they're the two best teams in baseball. So we'll talk about that. NBA playoffs, even a little bit of NASCAR as well. But I guess we got to start right away with the NFL draft. And Personally, as an Eagles fan, I'll start there. I am very happy that Howie Roseman, it looks like, did not botch this. He got Jordan Davis, who pairs great with Fletcher Cox defensively. Nicobe Dean in round three, who I'm shocked dropped as far as he did. Two Georgia Bulldogs from that national championship winning defense. And then, of course, the big move, making the trade to get a huge young receiver and then pay him the big bucks, A.J. Brown, which I'm happy about because I did not trust Howie Roseman drafting a receiver. He's not really good at scouting young receiver talent out of college, but he's certainly good at finding very, you know, promising receivers that have NFL experience, most notably when he built that receiving core for the Super Bowl run with Torrey Smith and Alshon Jeffrey, who had been successful elsewhere. A.J. Brown, someone who wanted out of Tennessee, now gets that max contract he wanted and a young receiving core with him at age 24, Devontae Smith at age 22. Uh, forget about Jalen Rieger. He's horrible. But Zach Pascal, they also signed from the Colts. So pretty happy with how the Eagles did. But I think, honestly, it's kind of crazy to say because New York sports are doing really well right now. We'll get to baseball, but I'd argue that the two most successful teams from this NFL draft were the Jets and the Giants. The Jets, of course, made some moves, three elite first round picks that filled three different needs. And But I, I know you're a Giant, you're, 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 your specialty is the Giants, Tim, and this team had two of the top seven picks and I don't think missed at all getting one of the best offensive linemen in Evan Neal and getting Kayvon Thibodeau, who personally I didn't think was going to slip all the way to five. Well, and, and uh, I'll start with this. I was actually a big advocate of actually wanting to see the Giants trade back from pick number seven to, to only think big picture because Texas, uh, or I should say the Texans, rather not Texas, but Houston um, had desires of getting two top 10 picks and trading up into the top 10. And, you know, we have to remember, of course, they're going to have Cleveland's first for next year, but on top of it, they'll have, you know, their own first. If the giants were able to do a two for uh, two for one, just like they had done last year with the bears where, Hey, if they trade with Houston, you know, they get Houston's pick and they got picked number 13. Yeah. I know, you know, you're going to either miss on Neil or Thibodeau, whichever way they were going, you know, at, at that point, you know, even Charles cross, let's say, because, they, they were still looking at him at that point. You know, hey, he, he, the, the point is, is he, he wouldn't be the biggest loss because of the fact the Giants, which also I'll, I'll say this has been, in my just my one opinion, the biggest pitfall for the New York uh, for the New York Giants is that they had until the end of uh, the end of April, you know, past the draft, um, you know, and actually I think they have until the. Uh, almost towards the mid to late portion of May, even if I'm not mistaken to announce the finalization of fifth year options. So the fact that the New York giants opted to say that they're, and, and again, let's be honest, we all knew they weren't going to give Daniel Jones a fifth year option. I think he hasn't played well enough to, you know, deserve that option with all due respect, but it's the fact that the giants jumped to announcing it right away, which to me raised a little bit of concern because I thought that was going to be a huge draft distraction. And somehow it turned out not to be. And again, I'm real happy with what they drafted. And I wanted them to trade back, but to, to get Thibodeau and I, 
I'm still very hesitant on SEC linemen, just historically speaking for the Giants, uh, because they have not turned out well over the past 15 years, even during our Super Bowl era. But Evan Neal looks like the real deal, and I'm not denying that. He was arguably the best climb in the draft, and I'm real excited to see what he can do. You know, and and the big thing about Evan Neal that I like the most, very versatile. You know, he can can play almost anywhere on that offensive line. He's not just specifically a tackle. I think in, in... uh, in Alabama, I think it was he played three different positions over his three years, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So that that to me is good because again, he has that versatility, he has that experience, and you can almost toss him everywhere. And the Giants this offseason, you know, did a good job addressing your offensive line. And Thibodeau is again a big pass rusher that this team needed. But I do want to say, day one wise, it felt like the Giants won. Don't get me wrong, the Jets got you know um, they got got the sauce as well as everything that they desired is including getting you know a a big pass rusher but when it's all said and done I feel like the Jets really won day two I didn't like how the Giants started off and basically brought in another Kadarius Tony of course at that time there was rumors the Giants were going to trade Kadarius Tony that got shut down immediately after the draft pick But I also do want to point out what was impressive about that for the Giants was that they traded back twice in the second round to convert that to five extra draft picks, which still a little bit confuses me in this regard. The Giants have no cap space. So they're trading back for all these picks, all these players they're bringing in. How are you going to afford half of these guys? Yeah, you're going to have to cut someone. So, and it may not be, it may not just be rookies, but you're going to have to cut a, uh, cut a veteran somewhere here. Uh, so the Giants would be more focused on stacking for next year. But definitely, definitely a win for New York sports. The Jets, overall, in my opinion, had a really great draft up and down. That, that you know, the fact that they were able to be patient and and still get the guys they wanted. Same thing for the Giants and. This is the one draft, too, where I'll say it, and it was a heavily highlighted story, especially on ESPN. You know, every year we have a draft where there's a clear-cut number one. There's a clear-cut top guy. We know who we we all believe is going to be the best player in a draft. And sometimes, you know, it's right. Most of the time it's right. Uh, a lot of the times it's wrong. But in this draft, there was no clear-cut direction. I mean, you think about it, Kenny Pickett went at number 20. Quarterback was a need for a lot of teams. Not many teams went. Of course, we broke the wide receiver record in that first round for, you know, the most receivers uh, receivers drafted. And you look at it, I mean, there were still some really good receivers that, and for the record, the, the, the Giants passed on one and opted to go for, you know, a, a more prototype receiver, you know, in, in round two. And for the record, round one, I think there's a lot of receivers that no one expected going on the board, but it came on the team's preferences and analysis. And on top of the two, Lyman, that's a good job by the Giants. Giants being patient. It felt linemen fell back, right? So they're going to go get their pass rusher first. It, it was a really analytical draft. And between that and the trades, one of the most exciting NFL drafts, I will say, uh, in some time. And, that, and, and, and I'm not saying talent-wise, but for the storylines, everything that went on. I mean, night one, we were texting and going crazy. We were going crazy because we said, who's next? I mean, we thought now – Debo seems like he's going back to San Francisco, but we thought for a good bit there that Debo Samuel was going to be traded late in that round. We thought, you know, a lot more people were going to be traded throughout the evening. And yeah, there were still a good bit of trades, but man, I just don't know. I mean, I, I'm reading more into the story, for example, about um, 
uh, the Cardinals trading for Marquise Brown. Mm-hmm. I found that to be very interesting because it seemed like DeAndre Hopkins knew he was going to be suspended well before it was announced, which was a big reason why he was pushing for them to trade for Marquise Brown, which is something I find interesting moving forward. Of course, they'll have Hopkins later on the season, but man, if the Cardinals can't find a way to win now, I don't know if they're ever going to win, Eddie. Yeah, that, that was a weird trade, too. I, I agree with you. I think the Cardinals knew that something was going to be happening, why that trade came seemingly out of nowhere. But also you wonder about the Ravens now, too, because Lamar Jackson didn't have that many weapons to begin with. And Lamar Jackson was a big proponent of uh, Hollywood Brown, and now he doesn't have him there. So you really start to wonder. People already call him a running back. Now he's going to have to throw to himself, too. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. And by the way, Ravens, in my opinion, biggest steal in the draft that, that I can't that can't go undervalued as well. The fact that they were able to get Kyle Hamilton, who I truthfully do believe is a going to be once in a generation safety. And and I don't care what, you know, he did in his combine or whatever. He proved a lot in college that he can be a good player. You know, the, the drafts again, everyone tries to, you know, to, to, to undervalue someone's, you know, value to, to hope that that player slips and so on. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of talking, but we'll see when he gets on the football field. But the fact that the Ravens were able to really make that defense as well, even better than what it is now, that, that defense is going to be scary. Just hope Lamar can get some more help offensively. And we can't forget last year, every single running back got hurt on that team. Mm-hmm. They need someone healthy on this offense. Yeah, for sure. And, I think that's sort of a trend that we've seen with the NFL draft where these teams are trying to become sort of combine masters. And they think that the combine really tells all hence why Trayvon Walker, who was not considered the number one favorite for that top pick surpassed Aiden Hutchinson just in the final days and was ultimately drafted number one by the Jags. And we're still really yet to see if that, that kind of school of thought works or not, but it's kind of surprising because Aiden Hutchinson had all of the, qualities and the classifications of being a number one overall pick and Trayvon Walker kind of snuck up there largely because of his performance. But yeah, you mentioned it. There's, there's so much talent up and down the draft. I didn't really see any glaring mistakes that any teams made. Only one that I was a little surprised by was Stingley going at number three to the Texans, but at the same time, Texans have to fix everything might as well start somewhere. So I don't really fault them necessarily for that. So overall, I think it was a really good draft and a lot of teams got what they needed. And it's going to create a lot of parity and a lot of competition in the NFL this year. But speaking of competition, we've talked about quarterbacks and One surprise was where Malik Willis ultimately ended up. He slipped to the third round and was taken by the Tennessee Titans. And then Ryan Tannehill was asked about mentoring Malik Willis. Of course, Tannehill, the starter who has struggled in the postseason the last couple of years when the Titans have won the AFC South and were destined for deep postseason runs, but hasn't really been able, you know, to compete on par with those other elite AFC quarterbacks like Lamar and Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen and this is what Ryan Tannehill had to say when asked about mentoring Malik Willis. In the quarterback room, the same room, you know, we're we're competing against each other. We're uh, you know watching the same tape. We're, we're doing the same drills. Uh, I don't think it's my job to mentor him, but uh, it's not my job to mentor him. I okay. You're a starting quarterback who's been in the NFL for ten years, and you have a new backup. Clearly, there's some sort of insecurity going on here if you're not willing to mentor this guy. 
it's just it's weird and it's not a good look for Tannehill and it creates a lot of unnecessary drama in the Titans quarterback room where there wasn't really any to begin with because I don't think anybody necessarily thought the moment Malik Willis was drafted that he was going to be in an immediate quarterback competition with Ryan Tannehill I think a lot of people sort of saw it as how Trey Lance was drafted last year by the Niners that he was going to be there might be the future but not necessarily going to be there to just replace Jimmy Garoppolo right away I think a lot of people saw a similar thing with the Titans, you know, letting a few rounds go by before they grabbed Willis and saw he was available. Clearly not a priority for the team. Ryan Tannehill now has kind of lit a fire that really didn't need to be burned at all. No, it really didn't need to be burned at all. And I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Malik Willis under center or Ryan Tannehill anyways. All they have to do is hand the ball off to Derrick Henry because that's all they have left now after trading away A.J. Brown. And let's not forget the Julio, you know, the the Julio trade didn't pan out. Julio Jones isn't coming back to the Titans. He's a free agent right now. So really, I mean, the Titans, again, Ryan Tannehill, just hearing that, Eddie, to me, it's disappointing because – Ryan Tannehill is the pure definition of a quarterback that statistically, and it, this is one thing that frustrates me. I used to equate Kirk Cousins actually to this back when he was in Washington. Ryan Tannehill is statistically a player that performs well average-wise. He's a great numbers quarterback, but a quarterback that you know has a lot of bark statistic-wise, but not a lot of bite proof-wise. You know, Ryan Tannehill came from Adam Gase, a production of a poor coach who had no clue what to do with an offense. And Miami gave up on him and he turned around in Tennessee and got him a chance, you know, to not just turn a needing franchise around that has been desiring the AFC South to be a powerhouse with a good defense it had, but make a charge and, and, and be a contender. And yes, don't get me wrong. The Tennessee Titans were the one seed last year, but in my opinion, in a while, they're the weakest one seed I've probably ever seen. They are far um, from the best team in the AFC. It, it's it, it's up there as one of the worst one seeds I've ever seen in NFL history. And it's not saying that team wasn't bad, but you know, with you know Derrick Henry being banged up throughout the year, and of course, you know the the, the momentum story of him trying to work his way back, which is you know it, it was just how good he is. But the point is the team wise had so many ups and downs, ups and downs against, you know, bad opponents, good opponents that, I mean, AFC in general was roller coaster ride, but I just, it's disappointing because again, he's a very good statistical quarterback, but I need to see something. If you want to talk about being a quarterback that deserves a job, you know, deserves security. I need to see something. I'm not saying Tom Brady ask, Aaron Rodgers ask, but I need something to 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 for you to show. Show me a moment. Show me something big. Because the big thing for Ryan Tannehill, in my opinion, over the last five years, he hasn't really made many big throws. He hasn't made really many big moments. Yeah, you know, he shows up once in here, but one game out of let's say what he's done out of the last three seasons doesn't show much to me. This is a team that wants to win a Super Bowl. And I understand the fact that, you know, he doesn't feel the responsibility that he, he that the person that, you know, is threatening to take his job away from him is, oh, uh, he, he should mentor him. But if you're not going to be a leader, who the hell is going to lead this team? And that, and that's just a common fact because that to me doesn't show qualities of leader. And it's been evident on the football field that Ryan Tannehill has not been the leader of the Tennessee Titans for, for seasons now. 
And again, it's just another evidence of disappointment, but I really hope they can get it together because again, I, in my opinion, the true leader on that team is Derrick Henry. It's shown, it's shown not just in interviews, action on the football field, how he handles himself. Derrick Henry, for example, Derrick Henry, if they drafted another running back, let's say four or five years from now, which I don't even think that's going to happen in Tennessee uh, anytime soon, but if they draft another running back and, and that we would believe would replace Derrick Henry, right? Derrick Henry would mentor that. I, I guarantee it 100%. So why should Ryan Tannehill? And, and, and again, I, I throw the stats point. You could be such a good statistic quarterback, but if you can't play in the big moments, Peyton Manning, great statistic quarterback throughout his career. He's one of the greatest Hall of Famers under, under center. But what did Peyton Manning do in the playoffs? Peyton Manning won two Super Bowls, don't get me wrong. The last one, he was carried by Von Miller in the defense, and he never was a good postseason quarterback. You could say the same thing about Aaron Rodgers, right? But the, the, the point is, is that they even have had brighter moments. And key thing, they won a Super Bowl. Ryan Tannehill has it. No quarterback should feel that they're safe if you've never won a big game. And it's just that simply put. You don't earn that respect. He hasn't won an MVP. He hasn't won an Offensive Player of the Year. He has no accolades to his name. He's just a mid-tier quarterback. And and he's replaceable. It's just that simply put. Yeah, I can't can't disagree with you there. Um, It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Titans, especially in an AFC South that – it's very winnable once again, despite any sort of drama, because you never know what the Colts, the Colts do have Matt Ryan and Jonathan Taylor, and then the Texans and Jaguars are the Texans and the Jaguars. So it'll be fun. But of course the AFC is very stacked and the South is undeniably the weakest of the four divisions. So it'll be really fun to see how it all works out. And of course, NFL uh, mini camp starting next week. So we'll start to see some of these drafted players out there on the field. Also pretty excited as a Rutgers Scarlet Knight that two Rutgers players were drafted this year, Bo Melton by the Seahawks, Isaiah Pacheco uh, went in the seventh round. So uh, a couple of players from the Scarlet Knights getting a chance in the NFL. So shout out to them, but Let's shift gears to baseball now. Major League Baseball now. Tomorrow is a month, uh, a day, a month since opening day, and the Mets and Yankees right now, the two best teams in baseball. And let's start with the Mets. What a win last night! I gave up on that game. It was seven-one. Taiwan Walker was getting shellacked. That's still a problem. Uh, I, I have my personal opinion here. When Jacob Degrom is healthy, foreseeably, probably mid to late June, when he comes back. Taiwan Walker should be the one removed from the rotation. Carrasco has proved himself to stay there. You can't take out Tyler McGill. Taiwan Walker should be removed from the rotation, make him a long man, or we've seen Steve Cohen eat money already. Taiwan Walker is not the same pitcher that he was the first three months of last year, and he has not looked very sharp at all this season. But you know what? The Mets still won the game. They were down 7-1 in the ninth inning, seven-run comeback, a famous Philadelphia Phillies bullpen implosion, even with Olivia Rodrigo in, in attendance at Citizens Bank Park. They still couldn't win the game. And... uh Edwin Diaz shut the door. The Mets, a combined no-hitter against the Phillies last week, split the series with the World Series champs before this, sitting 10 games above 500. I know it's still early, so I'll turn it to you since you're a little less biased since you're a Yankee fan and not a Met fan. Is there reason for me to think that this Mets team might be different from past years, or am I, as it's still a little too early to say? Well, there's absolutely reason to believe, and I'm going to be honest. Again, when I talk about teams that are World Series potential and 
proving, and I don't want to get your hopes up, but proving that they can show in big moments. It's examples like that yesterday where good teams thrive. Down down seven runs, the Mets could have just full, or excuse me, uh, well, yeah, down, down, I should say, what is it, six runs? Yeah, seven runs, seven run at ninth. But either way, you're down six, seven runs. You could have just folded. You could have just said, hey, we're done. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. You know, if you have an off day, go enjoy an off day, whatever, and, and come right back. And the, the Mets didn't do that. They had a big ninth. And again, the, the, the big thing that sells me on the Mets, two seasons ago, I know it was a pandemic season, but the Mets led Major League Baseball in batting average. I am a big advocate for batting average teams. I know a lot of people love the power of the production, but if you can get on base and you can find ways to have two, three hitters batting around a 300 mark, it's been statistically proven, at least if you have one hitter batting above a 290, all the way back to uh, basically the modern era, going back to the only team, in fact, back to 1968, the Detroit Tigers, when they last won a World Series, that was the only team that had hitters throughout their roster that, that you know, qualified for league leaders batting below a 290 mark at any point on the team uh, winning a World Series. And that's that's a very, very long time ago, obviously. The Mets have a lot of hitters. Again, I, I'm not saying that every team needs to have a bunch of 300 hitters, but the Mets hit so for average. They're so compact hitting, and then you complement it with the good pitching. I know, obviously, Walker – has not had a good season. But Miguel, I mean, very, very impressive to see. I think he actually is the best ERA on the Mets right now, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's top 10 in ERA in the MLB. Yeah, him and Scherzer are both top 10 right now, and Miguel's first for the Mets. And Scherzer, for the record, Scherzer was my pick for the Cy Young this year. I, I And right now, while he may not exactly be the favorite, you know, he's looking good. 4-0 start for, for Scherzer. He's looked very, very well. And you mentioned Carlos Carrasco as well. How is he going to battle back, you know, through injuries and everything over the past few seasons? And he's really found his rhythm and stride, you know, to this point in 2022. And the big thing for the Mets is, yeah, I know you still have to close your eyes every time Edwin Diaz is out on the mound in the ninth inning but the the fact is this Edwin has rather you like it or not he is still considered a good closer in baseball and really he's considered a top 10 closer in baseball yeah and I kind of like and I want to jump in on that because I know Edwin Diaz was really bad his first year in New York and I know the infamous game in Washington and the game at Dodger Stadium but He has not been bad since then. 2020 was good. Last year, he had a couple of blown saves. This year, he's had one bad outing. He gave up a game-tying home run to Pavin Smith in Arizona, and the Mets ended up winning that game in extra innings. Aside from that, Edwin Diaz has been flawless. He finished off a no-hitter for the team last week. Three of his last four saves have been one, two, three, striking out the side. I mean, you can't ask for anything better. He's a hard thrower. I love when the trumpets are playing at City Field and he comes out for his big intro. So, you know what? Edwin Diaz is playing well. And I just want to say one more quick thing. Jared Kalanick is playing horrible right now in Seattle. Justin Dunn is not even in the majors anymore. And now Robinson Cano is free from the Mets. Steve Cohen was willing to eat the money. That's why it's great that Steve Cohen is now the owner of the Mets. All in all, that trade that everybody thought was a disaster is starting to look a little bit better and steve cohen's done a very good job again managing this season and i the big thing though that i'll say on both the mets side and the yankees side really now of course both sides have had to deal with 
minor, minor injury issues at this point. Of course, the Mets had the biggest blow, Jacob DeGrom, to open up before the season even began. But I'm just eager to see with all these teams playing, you know, relatively soft and giving off days, being very calculated through this first month and a half. And particularly, again, it's really been both the New York teams. I'm just eager to see, and I said this about the Yankees last night to real, actually. I'm eager to see what happens when we get to the end of this month, when injuries start picking up, because that's also going to really be the telling tale of how will this team battle through adversity? Remember the Mets last season, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, the offense was, was quiet, but where things fell apart was when injuries started coming into the picture. So um, if this team could battle through, and again, the, the one thing I can compliment the, the, the Mets after this past off season. Yeah. Okay. You DFA Robinson Cano, you lose him, but this team has depth. This team actually has depth. Uh, I'm not saying that they're the depth of the Dodgers by any means, but there is promise that this team has depth and can have people that fill in big roles and continue to produce to help this team win games. I'm confident in the Mets right now. And I I know it's tough to say, but I am confident this team's going to win the NL East. And I'm very confident this team's going to go far in the postseason. And it's games like last night that make me confident that we'll see that in the future for the Mets this year. Yeah, it's been a really enjoyable first month. And baseball, Major League must love it that four of the best teams right now are in New York and L.A. Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, Angels, all off to red-hot starts. They'd love to see them go deep into the postseason for some ratings monster series. But there are two issues right now in the first month of the Major League season that I kind of want to talk about on this show. One is umpiring, and one is what's going on in Cincinnati. Let's start with the umpiring. Now, I bet a lot of people have seen the video now from a couple of days ago where Madison Bumgarner was thrown out of the game when they were doing the hand check for the sticky stuff. And Dan Bellino, the third base umpire, doesn't even look at his hand and is just creepily massaging Bumgarner's hand while staring at him, waiting for him to say something, immediately throws him out of the game and all that happened. We also know just a week before on Sunday Night Baseball, so probably the most watched baseball game of the week. You have Angel Hernandez as the home plate umpire and Kyle Schwarber has this explosion. And, uh, you know, Angel Hernandez is umpiring. There's a big reason why the Phillies lost that game one, nothing. And I mean, follow ump scorecards on Twitter. You'll see, they do great analytical (laughs) stuff and show how inaccurate some of these umpires are. And I know some people want to cut them a break. They're 60 years old or whatever. This is your job. This is is what you're doing. This is what you're getting paid for, for your career. This is your job. And if you're 60 years old and you can't do it anymore, I'm sorry, do not ump or at the very least, don't put them behind the plate. Put the younger guys with good eyesight behind the plate. The trend is that the younger umpires are better. I mean, come on. And then when you see what happened with Madison Bumgarner, that's an umpire trying to impose his power in a game and cause the problem when there wasn't really necessarily anything there because he was annoyed that Madison Bumgarner was complaining about how the home paid umpire was calling strikes. So it it just really enrages me because we've seen umpiring be a problem over the last couple of years that many people have been calling for robo umps, which could have their own problems there. But Uh, Tim, what is your opinion on just how the umpiring has progressed in recent years and any solutions that Major League Baseball could potentially have to mitigate this issue? 
Yeah, so I was actually watching John Boy Meade the other day, and and um, really, there was something that, to me, really jumped out as a possible option. And, and it's just the fact, and you mentioned, obviously, young umpires, statistically speaking, have done a very good job behind the plate and being more correct with calls. I think the real big thing is, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not saying that only young umpires have to be behind the plate, but really... I think Major League Baseball needs to do a better job following his analytics because obviously you look at the umpire scorecards on Twitter and, and they've proven to be a big help on seeing who's good umpires, who's bad umpires. But the, the big thing is, is like, for example, you know, not saying that Angel Hernandez is a bad umpire in general. Now, don't get me wrong, Angel Hernandez is a terrible home plate umpire. But Angel Hernandez is a field umpire, which we actually don't have obviously scorecards for. But actually really doesn't stir so much controversy. And I understand Major League Baseball has a union uh, for the umpires that protect these umpires and keep them in jobs. You know, if if I were a general person, I'd pay Angel Hernandez any amount of money for him to never umpire in baseball again. But that's just not the reality of it. It's the fact of, it's the fact of the matter of why does Major League Baseball present the option that why does every umpire have to work behind the home plate and constantly rotate? Why can't Angel Hernandez rotate throughout the field? Why can't you designate him in a, a position? Not saying that again, I like I understand. And from from my background as a kid, you know, going through umpiring, it pays more money to work behind the plate. It's just a fact you're you're dealt with more risk being behind the plate than you are being in the field. But I mean, hey, umpire, for example, in football, every umpire has their own designated position, and a lot of them stay within those own positions unless they get promotions as time goes on. I think about other sports too. Uh, I mean, you, you think about other sports where officials or umpires, they're, they're designated in their spots and there's still opportunity to grow while still within that position. So uh, to me, it would make the most sense for Major League Baseball to do that. I, I, I do understand the desire for an automated strike zone. Uh, but I think we saw it, a goodness. I, I want to say it was about a month ago. Uh, maybe it was a minor league game in double A. I could be yeah. wrong, but we saw a strike was a strike over the outside corner, get called, you know, get called a strike. But, you know, the pitcher who set up inside had to reach well across the plate and looked like it was a pitch well away. And you have a coach that comes out, gets ejected, you know, and comes and argues a call because baseball has been taught to be visually when you're calling balls and strikes and setting up that you've got to hit your spots if you want strikes to be called. So there's going to be, if you want that, a lot more calls where you have catchers reaching for pitches that miss, you know, maybe over the outside corner, but get called strikes anyway from not where they set up. And that's going to take a lot of adjustment really for managers and and hitters as well you know in general which to me causes it to be a little bit problematic i'm still not against it but i really think that baseball should make its first move of making for example an instance of what john boy media suggested because i i really think that group overall not not just the contributions that they've done for baseball obviously you think about everything with the used astro situation and so on but i mean if you listen to everything that whole media group does you know and it's not just yankee stuff of course but for baseball in general you know there's a lot of really brilliant ideas and we're really you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see, you know, just the, the, the great opportunities, you know, that, that baseball could have, but maybe hasn't thought of yet. And if baseball can connect with them and, and, and you know, continue to, to, to try to, you know, get 
young minds that, you know, have, you know, creativity to try to get people not just to watch this game, but maybe make the gameplay a little bit smoother, which has been the big criticism. I think baseball should be willing to listen to that. And I, for the record, too, I don't want to undermine this. Baseball this year um, made one little change. And that, that and in my opinion, that's one of the biggest change for umpiring is having umpires call reviews, you know, over the hot mic. That, and don't get me wrong, it's very NFL-esque. You could say it's cringeworthy, I guess, as some people say. But it, it shows some sense of accountability and explanation and why some umpires have been clear, crystal clear in explaining things. Obviously some haven't yet. They're still adapting, but I think that's a first uh, display, for example, of them trying to show accountability. So if there's any more way they can grow it and get things better, I think that'll only make things better. And I think they'll make the game of baseball a lot smoother. So let's talk about the other problem. And that's the Cincinnati Reds who are three and 22 through their first 25 games. This is a team that was very promising the last two years in the expanded playoffs in 2020. They made the postseason. They were on the verge of making the wild card game last year before the Cardinals went on their 17 game winning streak. Then they decided to trade everybody away. They let Nick Castellanos walk. They traded Jesse Winker, who had been an all-star starter the previous year and a Eugenio Suarez to the Mariners for basically nothing. And you have an aging Joey Votto and a bunch of mid-level players at best. The pitching staff is not good. Luis Castillo is hurt. And it's disappointing to see a franchise like this tanking. This is, Reds used to be one of the most proud franchises of the National League. And I, I just don't understand how tanking like, this is my thing, and I, I'm curious to hear your opinion, because I don't necessarily think this is like a problem of the sport. I think this is a single case where the Cincinnati Reds, for some reason, are ruining themselves, because tanking doesn't work as well in baseball as it does in other sports, because the Major League Baseball draft is not something like the NFL, the NBA, or the NHL, where the top picks immediately have an impact at the Major League level the following season. At the quickest You'll get a guy coming out of college that spends a year in the minors and comes up. And that's that's rare. Usually two, three, even four years before you even see these guys having any sort of impact for the major league club. And we've seen the Orioles, who have supposedly been tanking since 2016, and they're still arguably just as bad as they were five, six years ago. So I think major league baseball, it's just frustrating that these teams are start not realizing that tanking to try to rebuild is not the right strategy. And I just don't understand why the Reds did this in the first place because they had a nice thing going and were looking like they could be reasonably competitive if they held the roster together into the NL Central this year. But this is just embarrassing. Well, indeed, it is just embarrassing. But I, again, I don't really know if the Reds are... How do I say it? I mean, they're tanking, but I don't know if this is a full intentional tank in regards to... I think there's a lot more that we don't know. I think that they could be maybe having financial troubles or other things as well as an organization because just to me, it doesn't make sense. And this goes all the way back to two seasons ago. Where they didn't even make an effort to bring Trevor Bauer who won a Cy Young for them. And of course we know the whole chaos of that that's ensued since then. But the fact of the matter is even before then, you know, you would think you try to bring back someone that, that, that is arguably your ace. They didn't even, they didn't even bring back Sonny Gray. They just let Sonny Gray walk who had been their best pitcher. And they also, traded away a lot of their key pieces away to other teams as well which to me just signifies that I'm not saying that they're trying to tank but 
there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I guess they maybe didn't account for when doing a lot of things and, and putting together and they're trying to, you know, start refresh or, you know, start fresh and, and work their way through. But I agree with you. Tanking in baseball has been terrible. Um, you know, not everyone could be the Houston Astros turn around, you know, tank for seasons and then finally build a competitive baseball team. Same thing as well for the Chicago Cubs. You, you have to have the right people in the room. That's the big thing. You have to have the right people in the room and understand. You have to have good scouts, good trust that you're getting a good baseball player. And then you have to trust your minor league system that they can develop and grow these players to the right direction. For example, hey, the Yankees could have been real confident that they're bringing in Jason Dominguez, which, of course, isn't a draft. But, you know, from the Dominican Republic, all we heard is he's the future of Mike Trout, but he's not doing anything special in the minors, right? So, and, and granted, the kid's young, he has time to develop, but you have to have faith that that kid's going to develop and get to the next level. And it's not saying he won't, you know, but it's the fact of there's a lot that goes through the process. It's not like the NBA where you draft someone and they're instantly on your roster trying to make the piece. Same thing with the NFL. You're not drafting guys to instantly try to battle for starting positions. You're drafting guys that you may not see ever make the major league level. And for the Reds, the only thing I can think of if they're not going that approach, because again, I'm still just not dead set because the whole process to me for them just has never made sense over the, uh, over what they've done since the pandemic season. But I, I think the only thing I can think of and as nuts as it sounds is I can think of a Texas Rangers situation. Remember how bad the Texas Rangers were about three, four years ago? And then they turned around and they tried signing a lot of big free agents. And, of course, they got outduked eventually by Anaheim. Remember, that, that was a team that was supposed to get Anthony Rendon. And, thankfully, they didn't get Anthony Rendon because they would have probably ended up regretting that signing when it's all said and done. So, really... You know, and, and Texas hasn't been able to rebound, obviously, but they had a lot of money to play with. But I can only think of really a scenario like that. I mean, this NL Central, you, you can't say, for example, I mean, going into the year, Cardinals looked a little bit promising. The Pirates are still a disappointment. I'm sorry. I, I, I just... The, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates are not a good organization. They, they just never have been. It's been that simply put. And, you know... The Andrew McCutcheon era over there was well beyond over. Obviously, Cutcheon's not even with the team anymore. But that that was the bright spot for Pittsburgh, and it's not that way any, and not not even close to what that ever will be for years in Pittsburgh. Milwaukee, you know, their pitching's great, but I still need proof from that offense that they're going to be consistent. You know, uh, consistent contenders within that NL Central. Granted, they've been in the picture every year, and I mean the Cubs. The Cubs were structured for disaster. They, it, that was evident last year. So, I mean, that NL Central is, is still relatively weak. But uh, I would say I knew the Reds didn't bring back anyone. I didn't think that they'd only have three wins to this point in May. And really, one of their wins, they gifted to them. They didn't even, you know, again, the, 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 the Phillies game on Sunday night baseball, they really should only have two wins. I just don't know what to say for the Reds. I I just hope that they're trying to really invest big in a free agency and that it's just this season. Because like you said, this, this team had a lot of potential and has declined quickly. And if I may add, they're in Minnesota Twin-esque. 
if you think about it. How quick did the Twins fall apart last year after looking like having promised the last three seasons? It just doesn't make sense to me at all. Yeah, that's fair. But the Twins was just a lack of performance from their roster. It's not really like they made significant cuts to their team. It's just that the player performance went way down. The Reds, on the other hand, got rid of all the promising talent they had. You're not going to win when you're starting Brandon Drury every day. It's just a common sense fact. I mean, the Yankees did it, what, four or five years ago, and we're already out of that thing. Mets had him him last year. He was was one of the replacements. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just weird. And the Texas one is interesting, that comparison, because maybe that's something that you're planning for. But the thing is, what they traded away was not older pieces. It was younger talent. That's not what the Rangers did at all. They held on to their young guys. They let they let some of the older guys go, like Rugnet Odor and ultimately Joey Gallo. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Reds had promising young talent, like Jesse Winker, who'd only been in the majors for five years and had found himself as an all-star starter. Eugenio Suarez, who once hit 46 home runs in a season, and you let them both go for basically nothing to the Seattle Mariners. I mean, it's just, it's very sketchy and it's just not a good look for major league baseball, but it's been a fun first month of the year, regardless. Now, a couple more topics I want to get to. I want to shift to the NBA. And since our only show since the nets were eliminated um, was with Tommy Coughlin talking major league wiffle ball. I haven't actually had my nets end of season rant yet, which is actually good because there's been new news yesterday. Ben Simmons now has undergone back surgery and they expect him to be ready for training camp. Now, why on earth, if his back is this bad, was he cleared initially to play in game four? So I, I there's there, there are a lot of connections that are disconnections here in this whole story that I don't understand. Now, here are my problems with the Brooklyn Nets. That series was a complete and utter embarrassment. It starts at the top. And the fact that Joe Sy wants to keep Steve Nash for another season is outrageous. Steve Nash mismanaged that playoff series more than maybe any coach I've seen in the playoffs over the last decade, aside from maybe Doc Rivers in the bubble when the Clippers blew the 3-1 lead. For example, game two, the Nets had a lead. They were up 13 in that game. They were up five at the end of the third quarter. The Celtics had a run. They came back. Nash did not call timeout when they were closing the gap. He did not call timeout when they tied the game. He did not call timeout when the Celtics took the lead. He did not call timeout until the Nets were down eight with seven minutes left, and that game was pretty much out of hand already. So that's number one. Number two, the rotations he was using. I know you have a lot of guards out there, and the guards are the main talent, and this team didn't have a ton of size. But why are you playing with four guards and Bruce Brown at the five in a game where you have Al Hortford on the floor at the same time? Why are you going small ball when you don't need it? That's Steve Nash. It is becoming more and more apparent that that team was coached last year by Mike D'Antoni and Ime Udoka, who were both assistants and now aren't. D'Antoni is no longer coaching. And of course, Udoka, by the way, new coach of the Celtics, coached against against this team. We saw them play better defense against Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving than we have seen this entire era of the KD Kyrie Nets. And that's because Yudoka knows how to scheme for them. And we saw Jason Tatum locking down Kevin Durant. So that's number one. Number two, Ben Simmons. What are you going to get from him? 
I don't understand if he actually needed back surgery, why was he cleared in the first place? But I don't understand what's going to happen with Ben Simmons going forwards. I don't know how he fits into this team. I don't know how the other players really feel about him, to be completely honest, when there was a thought that he was going to play and that he was just sitting on the sidelines and then refused to sit on the bench for the home playoff games because he didn't want to be harassed by the Nets fans. So that, that it's, it's ridiculous and it's embarrassing. And I know the Nets had to get rid of James Harden. He wasn't going to re-sign there. Harden was just as uncommitted to the effort as Ben Simmons was. But now the Nets are kind of stuck with Ben Simmons. Nobody's going to want to trade for him. And there's no idea of when he's actually going to get back on the court, when he's going to want to play, if the players actually want him there, and if the fan base even wants him there. And most certainly, the NBA, the Nets fan base and the NBA fan base as a whole does not like Ben Simmons. Now, Kyrie Irving, here's another deal. Now, I know Kyrie Irving could not play because of being unvaccinated. I'm just going to completely ignore that. That's that's a whole other deal. Kyrie Irving has had a trend, though, throughout his time with the Nets where he misses games for a few games at a time. And with no explanation, Kyrie Irving needs a personal leave. We've seen that multiple times. You can't have someone that's not showing up to work because that does not mean they're 100% committed. Kyrie Irving was very disjointed those first few games when he was cleared by the by the uh, end of the Vax mandate to be able to play at the Barclays Center because he was playing like once a week. He was also very winded because he was not used to playing back-to-backs or three, four games a week. He was in a trend where he was playing one game a week and playing really well. Is Kyrie Irving fully committed? I don't know. Now, I know he's a lifelong Nets fan, but when I saw the way he was acting after the game, when the Celtics swept the Nets and Kyrie Irving is smiling, hugging Grant Williams. First of all, I thought he hated the Celtics. That's why he burns sage in the locker room before any game because there's ill wills. Clearly no ill wills if he's smiling and having fun with the Celtics after they just swept his own team. So I don't really know how much Kyrie Irving actually cares. Kevin Durant, I know he had a bad series. But at least Kevin Durant clearly cares, and he's trying to win away from a super team. But the window is certainly closing. Kevin Durant has now had big injuries that have caused him to miss nearly two months of the season, back-to-back years, and he already has missed a season due to an Achilles injury. Kevin Durant's been in the NBA for 15 years. That window is going to start to close very soon. The Nets need to make changes to their roster. It starts with the coach. I don't understand how you can have Steve Nash back. He is not a good coach. You need to figure out what role Ben Simmons is going to fill. You have to find out if Kyrie Irving is actually committed. And can you please get a center who can not only rebound, but also shoot the ball? Nicholas Claxton missing 10 straight free throws in an elimination game. Andre Drummond looking very slow out there. LaMarcus Aldridge can't even play because of his health issue. Blake Griffin was their best big man in that series. And that's really saying something. So the Nets, it's really disappointing that this year ended the way it did. But it was destined for that because they did not get enough time. They did not take the regular season seriously. They did not get enough gelling of the players together. And as a result, just like a year ago, when Scary Hours only played seven regular season games together, this group, not enough time together, couldn't match up. And Steve Nash's coaching ultimately ended up leading the Celtics to win. So just as I said that. Well, let me (laughs) – Kyrie Irving. Send him to LA, yes or no? I'd consider it. Depending on what you could get back, I'd consider it. I, 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 but the problem is Kevin Durant's not going to want to trade away Kyrie Irving. Well, right. And, well, see, because here's my thing. I, I thought about something last week in my head, and I said, holy, would this be poetic justice by any means? Now, don't get me wrong. 
everyone doesn't have a positive feeling about Ben Simmons. But I'd like to re-spark and re-mention a rivalry that when we first started the show a few years back, um, that that very much existed, and it existed for the rookie of the year. Now, I know everyone wants to see Donovan Mitchell come play for the New York Knicks, but what a story would it be if the Brooklyn Nets turned around and traded for Donovan Mitchell? I'm just saying, uh, a team with Kevin Durant, Donovan Mitchell, and Ben Simmons would dominate the NBA. Um, I think about it. Rather, ra- rather say whatever about Donovan or not. I truthfully believe that Rudy Gobert is the problem in Utah. Rudy Gobert is inconsistent. Don't get me wrong. Very good defensive player. He he deserves that respect and honor. But Donovan Mitchell can't be the source of production every single game. He uh, granted he had one bad game where he scored nine points and he was also hurt in that game. He led the NBA in that first round in points per game. And yes, he took a lot of shots, played against tough defense, but that team has been consistently winning games since Donovan Mitchell's been drafted, and he has beyond surpassed expectations for Utah. The fact that that team somehow, again, in my opinion, and it's funny how I mentioned last year, you know, for the Titans being the worst one seed in the NFL, well, let's be honest, Utah Jazz were the worst one seed in the NBA in a while as well in a Western Conference last season. And when it's all said and done, Utah brought back the same team, thought somehow things were going to change, and as my my quote goes, I say all the time on Sports Speak, complacency doesn't win you championships. It results in failure. You may win a championship one season. It's not going to win you a championship the following season. And Utah followed that, you know, followed that same exact scenario. I don't think they should fire Quinn Snyder, but in my head, if you could trade Kyrie Irving to Utah or reunite him somewhere else, you know, with LeBron James in LA, because let's be honest, I think LeBron would much rather bring Kyrie back than deal with Russell Westbrook at this point if it means saving the Lakers. But if there is any way they can get Donovan Mitchell onto the Brooklyn Nets, that team will be electric offensively. Now, of course, that still needs to solve a center problem as well. Andre Drummond, that's the thing about Andre. Andre's a real good numbers center real good rebounds real good you know he's a double double player but the thing with Drummond and his criticism all the way back in high school he's just not fast he, he he's he's more of that older style center player maybe not physical fully like you know Shaq of uh, of what we think of those centers to be but he's a good numbers guy but it's very hard for him to in the modern speed style of an NBA. Doesn't mean that he's not bad by any means, but I do agree they need some more help. And for the record, I think they should keep Andre Drummond over there. I think that he can be some help. I just see him more as a sixth man, if that makes sense. Uh, If with them getting, you know, a more versatile center that can shoot and so on. I mean, what about, um, oh goodness, uh, Robin Lopez. He's proven he can shoot. We're bringing in Brooke Lopez's brother. Okay. Okay. We, 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 you know what? Okay. We have, we have not debated that hard on this show in a while, but what would the Nets even get back from the Lakers if they traded Kyrie Irving there? They're not taking Russell Westbrook. Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook are not reuniting. I don't want Russell Westbrook. In no, Russell, hold on. Is it Russell Westbrook a free agent? I thought, I thought, he's, still he under, I thought he's still under contract. I thought he had a one-year deal. He's not a free agent. I thought he's still under contract because I heard rumors about the Hornets wanting to trade for him. 
a couple weeks ago. Oh, okay. See, I thought when they when they brought him in, he was only on a one year deal, and then if they were going to pay him more money, option wise, whatever, needs to prove himself. I mean, if that's the case, then I agree. Now they that that that's not happening. They're not trading for Russell Westbrook over and broken. I know Kevin Durant would want nothing to do with that. Uh, so I guess scratch that one off the table. I thought he was a free agent. But then in in the end of, again, with Utah, I think that's their, their best bet if you, if you want to bring in a guard. And, again, I mean, you being the Nets especially, I'm, I'm a sad Cavaliers fan. I have nothing in bandwagon jazz fan, as I like to say, because I'm a big Donovan supporter. That's not why I'm saying this trade, but I think that could really help them when we think about the story of everyone wants to see Donovan play in New York. But then you think about the rivalry between him and Ben Simmons for rookie of the year and who should have been rookie of the year, who shouldn't have. And I still personally believe Donovan Mitchell should have been rookie of the year, not Ben Simmons. He had more of an impact. Ben Simmons just played on a better process and had a lot more help around him. But Either way, whatever happened, happened. But I'd love to see them both playing on a team together and 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 changing the Brooklyn Nets and trying to carry them to a championship. And for the record, too, Donovan Mitchell has always talked about, you know, one of the bigger role models that he's looked at, you know, playing in the NBA and, and trying to develop his game around has been guys obviously like Dwayne Wade, but also Kevin Durant, you know, defensively trying to model around him. I mean, he would be a great mentor, in my opinion, for Donovan. And really, again, building leadership. The one thing I love about Donovan Mitchell the most, and I'm not trying to boast, but it's his how he handles himself for the most part is not – I mean, he's literally lifted the city of Utah. Utah, I know, doesn't want him to leave. He's taken that place like home. He has good character, which is something I really feel. I mean, let's be honest. The Nets need character if they're going to want to win a championship. You want players to be there. Donovan Mitchell wants to be on a team. He wants to win, and he wants to be there. That That's the best first step you can get, and you can get more players around that that want to be there and want to be committed to winning a championship. But obviously, Kevin Durant's a perfect example as well of that, battling through everything. But maybe that could get Ben Simmons on board as well. It's a good consideration, and I'd, I'd personally like that trade. I'd love to replace Donovan Mitchell for Kyrie Irving, even if the Nets had thrown another piece. But here's my concern, and this is what – I've talked about this on my college radio sh- show too. The Nets and the Lakers' struggles this year have called really something into attention, that the idea of mixing and matching superstars to pair together super teams simply is not something that is sustainable and can really work on a consistent basis in the NBA. Aside from the Miami Heat team in the early 2010s, I can't think of any other team that just brought in a bunch of superstars, threw them together, and had success. The Warriors are different because the Warriors were homegrown and then added Kevin Durant to what was already a championship team without him. The Thunder, look at how many different iterations of superstars with Russ and Durant and Harden and Paul George and Melo and Chris Paul that they tried and it never worked. The Rockets with Harden and Chris Paul and then with Harden and Russell Westbrook, that didn't work. Through a couple of years, the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George, that hasn't worked. And now we're three years into Kyrie and KD being on the same roster. They brought in Harden. That didn't work. And they threw away a young core that had already gone to the playoffs. And by the way, with a young team with Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, did better in the postseason than this current Nets team did this year against the Celtics. That still enrages me. 
James Harden or whatever, what makes me mad is that first trade, the fact that the Nets traded away what was a nice young core, Karis LeVert and Jarrett Allen for James Harden. I think the best Nets roster I have ever seen was the first month of that season when the Nets were already playing well and you had Kyrie, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, Karis LeVert, and Jarrett Allen as your starting five. That was the best looking Nets team. I don't really know if throwing another superstar into the mix is really going to help this team because I think what they need is many complementary pieces that can be put together, that can be spliced together, that fill different roles, bring in a young core. You have some young players like Kessler Edwards and Cam Thomas who had good years, find some other guys like Seth Curry that's already there that fit in and fill different roles. I don't think having one superstar and sacrificing that for a couple of solid bench pieces really is going to help the cause. And by the way, for Kevin Durant's legacy, it would mean more for him to actually win it in this way because he would clearly be doing it on his own with himself as the leader and as the star versus having to recruit other fellow superstars and all-stars to try to do it with him. It would actually help his legacy. But I will give you the benefit of the doubt. If there was a trade they were going to make to bring in another superstar, because that's probably the route they're still going to go because NBA GMs tend to not listen to Eddie Kalegi. But if they were going to do that, I think Donovan Mitchell is the right choice. But let's shift gears. Final couple minutes of the show. Uh, just a little recap. I'll give NBA playoffs. It's been pretty exciting right now. I'm very curious to see what happens with the Warriors and Grizzlies series. That's been so fun. John Morant versus Steph Curry. Of course, a lot of bad blood as well. Dylan Brooks suspended for game three. Uh, be curious to see how that works out. The Heat. Of course, taking control of the Sixers, James Harden, clearly not the same player that he used to be. And Tyrese Maxey's had a good series, but without Embiid, they haven't been able to do enough. Looks like Embiid might be able to play game three, but obviously playing hurt. We'll see how that affects him. Um, Celtics Bucks going to be another fun back and forth series. I think Milwaukee has the upper hand there. And Phoenix, Chris Paul, how about turning back the clock? Luka Doncic, not much help right now. And the Suns are just overpowering the Dallas Mavericks, but we'll have more next show to talk about the NBA playoffs. I want to finish with this um, two NASCAR stories because we're already almost halfway through the regular season. Season's been flying by. It's been fun. Dover race, by the way, was very entertaining being run on a Monday, pretty impressed by the size of the crowd that stayed there for a Monday afternoon race, by the way, at the monster mile and uh, was a fun one to watch. Uh, Good battle. Unfortunately, my pick, Denny Hamlin, was really fast. And then his pit crew, as is usually the case with Denny Hamlin, ruined his race for him. And then Cody Ware just finished him off. But um, still, I'm leading our pick You can follow along our pick at Sportspeak Live on Twitter. But I got a, finally got a winner. You got a winner. You got a winner. You got Chase Elliott, and you're starting to get closer. My lead was up to 85 points. The last two weeks, I got the least points at Dega. Um, and then... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Denny Hamlin finished 20th, which was my worst result I've gotten all year. Every pick I'd gotten had finished 16th or better until that race. So uh, maybe things are turning, but Hendrick Motorsports, of course, has been elite. All four drivers have won, but I want to look at another team. Ross Chastain, consistent every week, running up front, two wins this season. Say what you want about them being at Coda and Dega. They're still wins, still one of only two drivers with multiple wins this season. Trackhouse clearly has a lot of horsepower. Trackhouse is clearly a better team than 2311 out of the newer teams that came into the league, into the sport in 2021. So they were talking about it on the broadcast, Clint Boyer, Larry McReynolds, they were both saying the answer to this question is yes. So I'll pose it to you. Is Ross Chastain 
a legitimate threat for the championship despite not running for one of the super teams. Absolutely. I, again, the, the big thing, Eddie, about this season is it's unpredictable. And I know last year we mentioned a playoff. Oh, well, you know, anything can happen. It's unpredictable. Obviously, we had so many different winners to open up last year, which was a big surprise. But with this next gen, it's going to come down to who solves the car the best. And really, again, it, it comes down to what are you doing? Where are you when this moment happens? And again, I'll show an example last week, right? Obviously, Chase Elliott wins at Dover. But Ricky Stenhouse, you know, Ricky Stenhouse comes home second at Dover. Not a single person would have bet that Ricky Stenhouse even had a top five at Dover. Even though, again, that's a track statistically throughout his career he's been somewhat solid at, but he hasn't put on a performance as what he did last week. And it's just evident, too. I mean, for example, the Petty cars over the past few years, absolutely underwhelming. Outside of play tracks with Eric Jones, we knew that that team was, you know, not good at all. Obviously, we saw what it did with Bubba Wallace as well, play tracks. But that team had been an utter disappointment for seasons. They're being competitive. And yeah, they have a brand new part, you know, a brand new partnership, but really they've done a really good job being around the top 15, top 10 and really the playoff battle too. I, I want to point this out. Yeah. We have another different winner I until last week. Pretty much our top three in points were winless. Uh, Chase Elliott finally picked up his first win. It's hard to believe that Roger Petsky, after starting the year off so hot with Joey Logano, you know, doesn't have win in the regular season to this point. Blaney's winless. Again, we know the pit crew has fallen apart on that team practically every week. Joby Logano, I mean, had his worst race of the season last week, but he's been consistently around top five ever. He just can't find a win. And I mean, Austin, well, I shouldn't say Roger Penske does have a win through Austin Cindric, of course, for the Daytona 500. But it's the fact that any other track where we thought they were going to be competitive, I mean, we thought they were going to be so competitive at Las Vegas. And that wasn't really the case. That's a that's a four dominated track, you know. So to, to me, for the fact that those two of those drivers are winless, for example, Austin Dillon, he's been around the brink. He's had some really good performances. And we know Austin's won a couple of races throughout his career, but it looks like he has the capability of winning. Kurt Busch, other people. My, my point is this, is that I really think this season for the playoffs, it, it's anyone's championship. There is no single driver. Now, Ross Chastain has looked the most consistent, don't get me wrong, but you can also, that Chase Elliott's been the most consistent driver, and it's not just because he's the points leader, but he's kept himself around the picture, but he finally just got his first win. I, these playoff races, and this is going to be the first sense, for example, what we're going to see this weekend at Darlington, this throwback race, is going to be the first sense of what we're going to see come playoff time because Darlington is one of those bigger tracks, you know, one of those first tracks that we're going to go to for the playoffs. And we're, we're going to get a sense of, you know, what happens for a lot of these drivers and how they will respond in this new gen, you know, for, for the second time around. And, it's going to say this, and this this is where my big prediction comes. I know last season I said, hey, we could see 16 different winners or 17 different winners, but I really do believe this year that that 16th position rule of whoever is the highest in points without a win or highest in points in general with a win, that I really do feel like that's going to come into play this year. I really, really do, because I'm telling you right now, I'm – 
sure we're going to see a first-time winner at Darlington. I really feel we will. I don't know who it's going to be. And I'm saying first career-time winner, but first-time winner this season because it's just this week has been a flip of a coin, or this season has been a flip of a coin of who will win, who will come, who will show. I I really think for Darlington, we're going to see maybe MTJ pick up a win. Yeah, I I, I think Truex and – Really, when you just start to map it out schematically, we're up to nine different winners. Ryan Blaney's going to win eventually. Truex is going to win eventually. Logano's going to win eventually. So that's three more. That that leaves you only four more spots left. Of course, Hendrick, everybody's won. I think Tyler Reddick is going. Tyler Reddick is so due yep. for that first career win. It's going to happen. Should have won at Bristol. Yep. And, 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 and by the way, too, I don't think we've done a show since that Bristol race. So talking about NASCAR, what a sign of respect there by by mm. Scott Reddick. I would have, if it was me, I I would have probably punched. Chase Briscoe straight in the face. Uh, it's just it, it, from a driver's emotional standpoint, I mean, he's that close to his first career cup win. And and happens again, it's hard racing, stuff happens. But w- what a, you know, that that's a prime example of what you want drivers to be respectful. And while it stinks for Tyler Reddick, he should be locked into the playoffs right now. I mean, hey, Kyle Bush won the race. It was a good ending for. You as a you know as a Kyle Busch fan, Eddie, but man, I, I feel like one's coming for Tyler Reddick real soon. Auto Club, think about it too. He should have won Auto Club. So there, there's a lot of things for Tyler Reddick, and there's a couple good tracks coming up for him as well. Yeah, for sure. I think, and yeah, that that was pretty impressive. And unlike uh, Mr. Unprofessional Ty Gibbs, we saw we saw like some of his nice respect and maturity from two of the younger drivers in the sport, and two of the more likable drivers in the sport as well. But going back to the playoff picture, so you got nine right now. Blaney would be ten, Truex eleven, Logano twelve, Reddick thirteen. Christopher Bell has consistently been running up front; has been one of the better JGR cars. We've seen him win before. I wouldn't count him out necessarily. And you mentioned Austin Dillon. So that's already 15 people that can legitimately win a race. Kurt Busch, Eric Almarola, Kevin Harvick, even though I think he's washed, Brad Keselowski, you never know at Daytona with Bubba Wallace or Stenhouse. You also never know at these road courses. Daniel Suarez has shown some speed at times. There's a lot of guys who have the capability to get to victory lane this season. So I think that 16 winner thing, definitely possible. Only two multi-time winners so far this year. And it's William Byron and Ross Chastain, who I don't think anybody thought they were going to be in that position. But I'm glad you mentioned my favorite driver, Kyle Busch, because we haven't also haven't talked NASCAR since that cryptic interview two weeks ago. Of course, M&M's is going to be gone. So sponsorship questions loom for Kyle Busch and made it seem like there are a lot of concerns about if he'll even be back at all with Joe Gibbs Racing next year. You know Joe wants to get grandson Ty in the car at, uh, in the Cup Series. And as much as I don't like Ty Gibbs, Ty Gibbs is probably the best prospect out of the Xfinity Series since Chase Elliott and probably would hold himself pretty well in the Cup Series. Just got to mature a little bit. But do you think Kyle Busch, your goat, is going to be in some trouble here heading into 2023? No. No, I understand Kyle Busch right now doesn't have a set sponsor, but he can figure out whatever he'll figure out. I mean, Kyle Busch is a very marketable driver. And by the way, God bless him. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the news at least earlier, but uh, he at least is um, going to be on call and on watch both him and Samantha, you know, throughout the weekend, they're going to have Trevor Bain, uh, Mm -hmm. which 
by the way, it'd be a good opportunity for Trevor Bain if he gets an opportunity to get in the car again to, you know, prove himself after looking pretty solid, you know, in a lot of his Xfinity, um, a lot of his Xfinity starts. But, to, you know, for, for him to have an opportunity, you know, maybe, you know, go and enjoy what's going to be, you know, his second child, you know, through through a surrogate, you know, what a story for him and Samantha, obviously. That's, that, 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 that for me is touching the fact that they're finally able to have another kid after all this trying and so on. But, um, you know, for, for him personally, obviously these next two weeks are going to be really, I don't want to say, I mean, they're going to be difficult. Obviously <laughs> you're going to have another newborn. That's going to be, that's going to take a you know, big toll on him, but you know, that's going to be the number one thing on his mind. But I think, you know, he's someone again, very, very marketable and rather again, you, you, a lot of people hate Kyle Busch because of what he did nine years ago. Really, if you say, I shouldn't say it's nine. It's been more than nine years now. Think about 2009, 2010, and, you know, the cocky attitude they have to say. You've got to respect the talent that he has and, and what he brings. And he really is, you know, for this sport, means a lot. He, he's a personality, an older style personality that you can get behind. And and, and you got to respect his driving ability. Again, I you, you could say he's not better than Richard Petty. I get that. But in my opinion, Kyle Busch will still fall. And I know you'll highly disagree with this, but as a top five driver of all time, I really do believe that, you know, and I understand he doesn't have the full championships to show it, but Kyle Busch has won in nearly everything he's raced in, in his lifetime. And that's just up there. And Kyle Larson, for the record, if Kyle Larson keeps on the track that he has, he'll fall under that list very easily as well. In my opinion, you know, Kyle Larson's easily the best driver in his generation. It's a little bit disappointing to see uh, that he's not put up the same stuff, but for going back to the point on Kyle, um, it, it's I, I think he's there. I think the odd man out, in my opinion, is MTJ. I, I and I know it stinks for Martin Truex Jr., but I, I just feel that Martin Truex Jr. He's having a solid season. Don't get me wrong; he's been around there, but it's very hard from a sponsorship standpoint. I guess you could say. I mean, yeah, he has Bass Pro Shops and and, and all that, but. They're also He's, a very mobile sponsor too. They've sponsored cars for all three manufacturers. Right. And, and, and it's like, it's very hard to get a, to, to get a sponsor. How do I put it? That's, that's brand new involved with MTJ because he's been practically the same sponsor even even all the way back to when he was with DEI of course the only difference is when he was with Michael Waltrip Racing he had Napa but Napa was a Waltrip sponsor that wasn't you know so for me it's not saying that MTJ isn't worth money he's a real good driver and so on but I I would feel like he's the odd man out now just hear me out on this though I really do think that if MTJ were to lose his ride at Gibbs you're probably going to see, for example, what would, let's say, well, it didn't happen, obviously, because Eric Jones ended up going to Petty, but it, it was a very likely scenario had there not been a shutdown. But I could, for example, see MTJ going to 23XI and being that third driver, which, by the way, it seems like every year now, 23XI, they're trying to talk about expanding, expanding, expanding. I could see him being a third car for 23XI in a number 91 scenario or so on. And I, it would be another good sponsorship for Danny and Michael and, and, and growing a team that's continuing to get better. But I would think he'd be the odd man out for Ty Gibbs. I think that what could also be interesting, obviously, Eric Almarola, the 10 car, Smithfield probably going to be gone. Uh, Haas is going to be looking for a sponsor and Truex has never driven for SHR before. Maybe he completely changes pace and goes and drives the 10 and races for Haas. <laughs> 
I can't see MTJ in a Ford. I just can't. He, 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 don't get me wrong, Chevy, Toyota, but I just can't see him driving a Ford. It, it's so it's so frustrating. The big thing is, too, why would he want to put himself in a situation where, don't get me wrong, 23XI hasn't been perfect. They're still having a lot of problems, you know, pit crew-wise and falling apart-wise, you know, and so on. But Kurt Busch has proven himself, at least this season, to still be, even though I know the points may not fully reflect it, to be somewhat competitive. Bubba, rather you, I mean, Bubba was battling for the top 10 throughout most of over, you know, last week. And he's proven that he can be in the picture. It's just a matter of, can he get there consistently? And again, he's had a lot of things outside of his own doing this season that have not been his fault that have resulted in a couple of bad results for him. So for me, I feel like still he doesn't leave the Toyota team. And the big thing is, again, I feel like there's a lot more of an upside for 23XI than there is racing for Tony Stewart. And and don't, don't get me wrong, that's not a diss to Tony Stewart, but w- what has Tony Stewart done outside? Of, of course, I know he has a big focus on SRX, but what is what has him and Haas done really since Kevin Harvick has won a championship, you know, and, and had that big season where they missed out on the final four, which was only a few years ago, but what have they done to progress themselves as a team to get up there? It's like, I just can't think about that. They've gone with one or two big drivers and then they've signed, you know, young un, unproven drivers. For example, Cole Custer, in my opinion, isn't, isn't a good driver. You know, obviously Briscoe's proved himself, you know, this year to, to be a contender. But for the record, I don't know how Briscoe's going to do in the playoffs. He's unpredictable. It's just the fact of the matter for for Chase Briscoe. And again, he's he's had a good year, but you don't know what Chase is going to do. And especially to be his first time in this scenario. Eric Almarola has surprisingly had a really good year after last year being a disappointment. But obviously he's retiring. And Kevin Harvick, I know you say he has a feel you feel he has a chance at winning, but Kevin Harvick is not going in any week anymore, which we which sounds insane after thinking about two seasons ago. Kevin Harvick isn't even a top uh, top five driver thought to win a race going in every week, every process at this point anymore in this season. And he, let's be honest, he's on the decline of his career. It's well, yeah, just, I, I said that. I said that he was washed. I mean, I don't think Kevin Harvick's a really, really a concern. Well, well, I'm saying you, you can't count him out from winning, but he's not a uh, he's not a threat every yeah. week. If he wins, it's not surprising, but he's not a threat every week anymore. And and. It's been a constant decline, and it it just doesn't make sense to me on what Haas has missed, you know, since the changes over the last two, three years that they just haven't been able to get a grip. Let's also, I mean, well, if I'm not mistaken, going back to the preseason, were they the only team that didn't even have a uh, a driver, if I'm not mistaken, during testing? Because I'm also trying to think about that, too. I don't think they tested at Daytona. At all. And, and granted, Daytona, so. but I don't think they did much testing either, which could be why they're behind the eight ball. But again, I just, I don't really know what to say for, for short Haas right now and, and TJ being a landing spot. I mean, again, could be an opportunity, could be them turning around and getting a big driver, but can't ignore MTJ is also a lot older too. 
how much longer would you keep MTJ and Stuart Haas when you're trying to build the future? I, to me, that just wouldn't make much sense as compared to 23XI, which is, you know, hey, you can have a filler and then turn around and continue to build and build and build. And hey, maybe that could be eventually after MTJ the landing spot for Denny Hamlin, because at some point he'll transition out of Gibbs, I'm sure of it. So there, there, there's a lot of opportunity and a, a lot of options, but it's just so weird for Stuart Haas right now and who will Ty Gibbs replace. But I, it, no matter who Ty Gibbs replaces, I can guarantee you it's going to be for Joe Gibbs racing. It's not going to be for some alternate like we saw with Christopher Bell. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's for sure. But I want to leave it with this because I kind of disagree with you because, yeah, it is obvious that they weren't at that Daytona test. They have been at the subsequent test. Almarola is doing a Goodyear tire test. So they they are involved. It's not like they're completely aloof. And here's the thing why Martin Truex Jr. would fit. Haas and Ford in general do not have a lot of development drivers that are cup ready. Riley Herbst is the closest thing to a Haas-affiliated cup ready development driver they are still a couple of years away martin truex jr is not looking for a long-term move in my opinion i think martin truex jr is only going to be racing another maybe two three years uh, at the full-time level so i think that could potentially work as a filler to replace al marola and i think part of the problem with Stuart haas racing isn't necessarily that the team is behind the eight ball because we've seen Chase Briscoe win a race. We've seen Chase Briscoe be competitive. We saw Eric Almarola, at least at the start of the season, first four races, he was the only driver to finish in the top 10 in each of the first four races this season. He was consistent. He's still running well. He's still firmly in the playoff picture. Kevin Harvick has not adjusted to the next gen because he's washed. And Cole Custer has not adjusted to the next gen because he's not nearly as good of a driver as Tyler Reddick and Christopher Bell from that rookie class, which honestly isn't that much of a surprise. And it's making more and more like that 2020 Kentucky win was a fluke. But I think a lot of the problem is more so with the driving personnel rather than how the team has grown, because I think Ford still and Haas racing have potential. I think it's somewhere Martin Truex Jr. could fit, but I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Tim did broach our goat debate so sometime during the summer we will have to get back to that because I I will die on the hill that Kyle Busch is not a top five all-time driver but we will we will get back to that um, next time Uh, by the way summer's coming I'm done with my semester on Tuesday so we'll have a lot more content for you during the summer because I'll have a lot more time on my hands but I want to leave it with this Tim because let me grab my uh, headband here We got some basketball tonight. The radio station against the newspaper facing off at Rutgers. I need to get your prediction. What are you expecting for me to drop in this game? Four 10-minute quarters. Well, let's see. If you shoot anywhere near what I saw in that video uh, last week, I've got you drop in 12. Double digits. Well, well. Wait, are you playing the games of ones and twos, or are you playing a natural uh, basketball? Twos and it's regular basketball. Okay, so regular basketball. Are you playing every minute? Is it set? Oh, I'm not do, playing. Is it 5v5? Like, you get what I'm saying? Is it straight, like, only 10 people? How many people are involved on each there's side? Seven, there's seven people on our team. So seven. I will get a couple of breathers, but, yeah. Okay, so, and you're playing full NBA regulations, yes. two apps. What do you yes. so you're playing four 12 minute quarters? Four 10 minute quarters. Four Kyle 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I may have to go higher than 12. I may have to go higher than 12. I'll say 16. Six, right. six, 
Uh, but but it depends. If you have the same kid that was guarding you before, I don't know. I mean, who's on your team? All right, so we've got a couple of decent players. We've got one that play, won an intramural championship. We've got another one that's uh, pretty solid, too. Uh, aside from that, I may be the third best player of the seven. So the thing is, the defensive attention is going to be focused on those two, which could leave me open to get some shots. So if I get chances, I'm going to try to capitalize on them. So you're going to be shooting from deep is what it sounds like. You're going to be going for threes. I'm a perimeter player, Tim. I'm a perimeter okay. player. Yeah. It's Classical point guard, lefty shot. You got good. You got good float on your shots too. I wish I could have that good of an arc. That high arc. I mean, that shot was up there forever. Yeah, I mean, it, it went to the top row before it came back down. So I think there's good potential. But you know, let me ask you, I guess, this question. Obviously, you're playing, so of course you feel like your team's gonna win. But what do you think the final score is gonna be? I don't know, four 10-minute quarters with people who can score and then some people who just can't. I don't know. Personally, I think 16 is a little high for me. Um, I think I think so. I think a team could get close to 50. I, I, I think that's I think that's possible in the realm. I think it's gonna be close. There are good players on both teams. I think somewhere around, you know. 46, 42, somewhere around there. And hey, if I could somehow drop double figures, I'd be thrilled. As long as I get in the scoring column and don't have like a Danny Green, Tony Snell cardio game, I'll, I'll be proud. I'll be very well, proud. What are you going to do if they put someone that's uh, taller than you on you defensively? Well, then I'm going to have to pass it away. Now, that's the other problem here. <laughs> I am five foot 10. I am 129 pounds and I am listed as the power forward. So, that's that's where things can kind of derail here from my plans of being a perimeter threat. Yeah, we're going to transition that to uh, instead of power forward, let, let, let's use the uh, NBA K term when you create a player, a point forward. I, I think yeah. I think that's more I think that's more fitting. You're like the, the pure stretch that uh, has a passing ability. Yes, yes. That is what I'm going to be aiming for. Next show, we can break that down and have my performance along with all the other stuff going on in sports. And a reminder, we'll have more frequent uploads. We're also approaching episode 100. I got some great guests lined up uh, coming up in the near future. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. You can follow along with our NASCAR Pick'em on Twitter at Sportspeak Live Sunday. Uh, the throwback race for NASCAR for Mother's Day weekend, the Goodyear 400. Uh, me, Tim, and Drew will have our picks as we do every week. But until next time, I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Uh, have a great uh, rest of your day. This was Sports Speak. Happy Mother's Day on Sunday to all the moms out there. And we hope you have a great rest of your weekend.